Expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when just... Hosted by social activists and spoken word poet Max Barthes with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. August 24th. 2016. Today's program will be mainly dedicated to the historic event of 18-2016 when the Department of Justice announced in the groundbreaking statement by the Assistant Attorney General that the federal government will be phasing out their use of private prisons. This is a huge victory for the abolitionist movement and a watershed moment which will have ripple effects for years to come. Many have been wanting to know our opinions. After a week of watching it all unfold, tonight we give you what you asked for. It's all about making history and appreciating our victories in the ever-growing new abolitionist movement. We'll be presenting a live former writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, Brother Sundi Moses, who became a free man for the first time in 18 years in 2013 as he walked out of an upstate prison determined to prove that a dirty detective railroaded him for the killing of a four-year-old girl in Brooklyn. He's going to update us on his efforts with D.A. Ken Thompson right here today. He's calling out the Brooklyn D.A.'s office for for putting justice on a respirator as the administration review of his exoneration drags into its third year. We also celebrate another victory courtesy of the DOJ ruling this past Thursday stating that bail practices that incarcerate indigenous individuals before trial solely because of their inability to pay for the release violate the 14th Amendment. Holding defendants in jail because they can't afford to make bail is unconstitutional. This is the first time the government has taken such a position before a federal appeals court. We applaud the decision of Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, who recently restored voting rights to over 13,000 felons. We claim another win for the people as a federal court ruling declares that states must resentence those given mandatory life without parole terms as juveniles. We salute the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under Law Lawyers Committee, along with Morrison and Forrester LLP, and the American Civil Liberties Union of Arkansas, uh, who filed a class action civil rights lawsuit challenging the modern-day debtors' prisons in Sherwood, Arkansas. Finally, we look forward to and ask that you help us to bring awareness for the IWW Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee National Prison Work Strike occurring on 
September 9, 2016, which is scheduled on the same date of the Attica Prison Slavery Uprising of 1971. Our abolitionist in profile will be Paul Cuffey Sr., 1759-1817, a direct forefather from my wife, Tribal Rain's family, and best known for his work in assisting free blacks who wanted to immigrate to Sierra Leone. We will also recognize the anniversary of Nathaniel Nat Turner, 1800-1831, the abolitionist who led the only effective sustained armed rebellion against slavery, August 1831, in U.S. history. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. If you'd like to join or uh, ask a question or a comment, just call us at 1-641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. Press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Make a move to abolish 21st century slavery and join the new BTRN social network as we make our exodus from Facebook at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. Once again, I'm Max Pipers. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Um, excuse me, Max. Uh, just kind of hot and tired, man. But other than that, I don't have any complaints, really. I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling kind of better today, man. I feel like the universe is giving us as good as it is giving us bad. You know what I mean? Like all the stuff we've been going through here as a family, we're watching these victories unfold before us from the work that we have done. It's a beautiful thing to see, man. And it's happening in a cascade, like just all of a sudden, boom, 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 one after the other, just justifying every single word that has come out of our mouth here for the past four years and out of my mouth personally for the past decade plus. Yeah, it's great to see. It, it is great to see anytime you make any kind of progress towards a goal. But at the same time, we must, you know, uh, not spend too much time celebrating as the goal is to end slavery. Indeed it is, brother. But I remember on more than one occasion, all three of us here, and I know our listeners feel it too, get to that point of depression where you just need a win. Like you just feel like it's so overwhelming and what can you possibly do? And it's David and Goliath and how could you? So once in a while, we got to throw our wins out there and celebrate them. And today is one of those days. We don't toot our horn often here. But I think not only do I need it, but I think the people need some wins today. Yeah, but, I'm, you know, me, I'm, I stay in a constant state of semi-depression because of traumatic stress disorder. So, but, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to see this, man. But, again, I'm just I'm just cautioning. I'm throwing cautions to a wind because it's these things, like you mentioned, the court case where, where the DOJ made the argument that it's unconstitutional you know, to hold somebody um, who hasn't been convicted in jail simply because they can't pay to get out and what have you. But still, that's that's not a fine. That's the position they've taken. Now, what position will the courts ultimately take? So I'm just trying to temper temper my enthusiasm. I'm not trying to temper anyone anyone's else's. Um, you know, because it's just it's it's just so. Especially people like ourselves, Max. We're passionate people to begin with, but then we have invested a lot emotionally, a lot intellectually into this abolitionist movement. Myself, you know, for the past four four years, and so we've seen ups and downs. And so I'm just trying to learn to just try to stay on an even keel, but use these victories to point to people, like you said. Everything that we've been telling you on this program for for almost going on four years, 
it's being confirmed through the courts. It's being confirmed through through uh, policy positions or just simple statements from the DOJ about not uh, going to renew prison contracts, which caused the stocks of these private prison enslavers to tumble over 50%. And, and, and so, yeah, they did make a comeback the next day, but they did not recover all that they lost. So that's still a victory. And so um, I've been watching that news coming out of the financial side of it, um, particularly following what's being posted at Seeking Alpha. Uh, they've been particularly busy, man, uh, putting out a whole lot of different statements, analysts, uh, analysts giving their thoughts on it. Uh, some say don't panic. Others say absolutely panic, you know, because this could be the end of this industry. So I'm, I'm just, hey, I'm, I'm I'm taking it all in, man, and I do know we're trending in the right direction. Indeed, and I, I believe that this is the death knell of it. Uh, we've been fighting too hard, and too much is happening simultaneously that they have to continually defend against, and they're making concessions and mistakes. What we have to be very careful, I think, of is the alley-oop, the 13th Amendment, so to speak, where the exception clause comes out, where their backs are against the wall so badly that they have no choice but to put an end to it, but they'll do it in a controlled fashion and put in an exception somewhere. So that's my, always been my, my biggest concern, you know, that not that we can win. I know we can win. I know we're going to win. There's no doubt in my mind. What I'm concerned with is we get hustled again, and then another... 50 years our children still have to go through the same thing over right but um you know i i don't want to temper your enthusiasm man so i'm just gonna try to to again just uh, i'm gonna defer to you on this one uh but i I just man it's a long way man (laughs) and we alone they i ain't heard nobody talking about removing the exception clause um, you know, in terms of the federal government, yeah, they saying they doing they're going to move away from private prisons. Um, but I haven't heard anyone talking about uh, the United States government closing down Unicor and divesting itself of its own private prison. And and so we just had to be careful, man. The, the devil is crafty. You know, they pull that sleight of hand uh, on you and had you looking at this and then at the same time behind the, you know, curtain, they doing something else. So I, I'm just trying I'm oh, just yeah. trying to be even kill, man. And we still need a whole lot of people. Look, while we got while we got them up against the ropes to use a boxing analogy. Hey, we need to just keep on uh, hitting them with them body blows and just keep on and keep the pressure up. So we need new abolitionists every day. Every day we need fresh new blood in this fight. So I, I just hope people are, are inspired by the recent movement in a, in a positive direction in addressing this very evil and old institution. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, we released the abolitionist goals which was published in big blue magazine uh with madison page who was a guest here on new abolitionist radio and i guess that's our list of things to do and you put substitute another word for things which i would normally do but if that is our list of things to do our checklist so to speak and number two on that checklist was we want all private prisons in the u.s abolished including private probation companies and all the satellite companies profiting off of the prison system. So yeah, I'm well aware that we have not accomplished that goal, but we darn sure got the door open now where you can see an end in sight. 
people are demanding more now. Like they're saying, you know, these are only 13 prisons, and this is a small percentage of being that it's the federal prisons. What about the Department of Homeland Security? What about the immigration centers? What about the juvenile detention centers? What about the state uh, contracts that they have with these private prisons like in Arizona where 80 or 100% uh, occupancy is guaranteed for 25 years. Well, personally, I, I'm looking at this as initial conditions of chaos. This is the beginning of the end. So we're going to watch these things happen one after the other. As long as we keep pushing forward, we can get it accomplished. And uh, there's a particular article that came out in all of this hoopla, because everybody had an opinion about this, you know. But I found one article that was a uh, microcosm of what is real about what's occurring right now and why it even existed to begin with. Um, I know Johanna is coming a little bit late. Just let me know when he gets in here. Sure. It's about quarter after, and we're expecting Brother Sunni uh, Moses to call in at any time. But if you like, I'll share that one story regarding the DOJ's decision and the immediate ripple effects of it and how people are reacting to it. It's a very telling story that came out of the Standard Times, and I'll put it on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. In the future, it will be on New Abolitionist Radio on um, Black Talk Radio Network and the community Black Talk Radio Network. So this is by Rashada Khan, and it says the U.S. Department of Justice announced on Thursday that it would phase out private management of the federal prisons left several West Texas communities, including Eden and Big Spring, shaky and on edge. Now, pay very close attention to the words being used in this article. While questions and speculation ran rapid, city and county officials reiterated that not enough information is available to know what will happen for sure. Yet, they admitted the news had set off a flurry of phone calls to prison wardens, congressional representatives, and anyone else who could answer questions or help. Many considered the prisons vital to their community. Eden. It's like closing Goodfellow Air Force Base would be for San Angelo, said Eddie Markman, who came to Eden to serve as warden of the Eden Detention Center. He retired in 2007 and is serving his third term as mayor. Wow, he got a bigger prison, didn't he? The prison is a godsend for this town, and everyone is behind it. We want to keep it. Let me repeat the mayor's words one more time, who was a former warden. He says the prison is a godsend for this town, and everyone is behind it. We want to keep it. The Eden Detention Center, marked by stark concrete and shiny razor wires, sits on the eastern edge of Eden, about 45 miles east of San Angelo. It employs more than 275 people and pays the city about 40000 per month for water and sewer services. One of the reasons we don't give them a big break in rates is because the inmates outnumber the citizens. Even in terms of water use, Markman said, adding that the out-of-prison population in the city is about 1,250. The Federal Bureau of Prisons website lists 1,370 prisoners at a detention center, which has 1,558 beds. In addition, 
the employees help support the local economy by paying for meals and fuel. The jobs at the detention center start in the $19 per hour range, uh, range, according to the Concho Valley Workforce Development Board. While the closure of the detention center would hit even the hardest, officials said many of the employees commute from surrounding areas, from San Angelo, Ballinger, and Brady. People drive for these jobs, City Administrator Selena Hemmerton said. Hemmerton also said Corrections Corporation of America, the Nashville, Tennessee-based firm that owns the prison, has been a good corporate citizen. The company sponsors the annual Chili Dip Golf Tournament that donates proceeds to the Concho Springs, Springs Golf Course this year and also donates to Eden's Fall's Fest celebration every year, she said. The roots of the prison are further entwined around the heart of Eden. When the facility was sold to CCA, the firm's local leadership set up a charitable foundation called the Spirit of Eden Fund. It's managed by a volunteer board of directors with the stated objective of improving the quality of life in Eden and the surrounding area by maintaining and conservatively growing the assets for perpetuity. Now, this story goes on about 12 or so more paragraphs. I'm not going to read it all. I think you understand what's being said here. What they're pointing out in particular is that for the jobs of 275 people, a couple of annual donations to golf courses and uh, a fund that is going on. These people love slavery. They love it right there in the middle of their city where the prisoners outnumber the citizens. This sounds very much like South Carolina in the 1800s when the slaves outnumbered the citizens. And we're in that same position. And they're not concerned about CCA's uh, many lawsuits uh, against them for violations of constitutional rights, which we've heard the DOG quote, DOJ quote numerous times. Now, they're not worried about any of the conditions these people live in or why they're even there. All they care about is their 275 people getting paid every week to be there and the money that they make from that prison. And without that prison, the city would fail. You you know, it's a lot of... There's a lot of people like that, man, that they don't even, I don't know, I, I hope they don't recognize what they're doing as slavery, but I'm not going to say this person's name, this is an elder black person who's written many books, and I kind of respected them, but I'm like, now I'm looking at them kind of side-eyed because I heard them say, that blacks need to get in the business of all of these private prison contracts and, and you know, the uh, contracts to service the prisons and jails because if our people going to be there, we ought to make some money off of it. I just was speechless, man. I was talking to, this was an elder. I didn't know what to say to this man other than, you know, um, you just um, you just really don't know what you just did to your standing in my eyes to suggest that uh, we 
act like a bunch of damn slavers and just to make some freaking money and then to say, well, if it's our people that's the majority of our people is in prison, we ought to be the ones uh, servicing the prisons and all this and that. Not we ought to be getting them out, but we ought to be making money off of them being in. I'm not going to say the person's name. They well known and, and highly respected, but I lost a lot of respect for that person. And that's the type of people we got in this town here. They don't care they don't care that people are suffering. They don't care that people are being enslaved they don't care about any of that all they care about is they able to put food on their table keep their lights on maybe drive drive an american-made car or something i you know go up take a little vacation once a year take the family out and all of it is on the back is 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 due to slavery man profiting from slavery man yeah it's it's amazing and you know i've heard this argument from other people in my conversations before, at least three times people have asked me that very same thing. Why shouldn't we have a part in it? Because there are no black-owned prisons. It's just, period. There's I no mean, there are, but, but Max, you know, and we pointed out, um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, the third, I think the third, right, the, the uh, former Supreme Court justice, the first black Supreme he's Court. He, he's a And he sits on the board of CCA. Right. And then I published a picture of the keyboard members of the GEO group. And it was two black yeah. dudes on that group. So, yes. so, yes. but still, though, you know, uh, um, just this person who is about black nationalism and, and economic power to just to even suggest to even suggest that black businesses ought to be making money off of off of slavery. It, it was just absurd to me, man. Yeah, it's it's certainly absurd. And I, I've heard, as I said, from several people who have come at it from different directions. Uh, and they were, one was talking about how maybe uh, we should provide the prisons for our own people and manage them ourselves, whereas we can educate them and uh, literally... Uh, put them through a correction system and give them uh, different types of skill sets that they can use afterwards. I mean, if you're going to do all that, if you're going to do all that, why not build an Afrocentric school so they can get education before they go in there? Well, I, you have to ask them that. I, I'm just I, I know. I, it's a rhetorical question. Me. Yeah, it's a rhetorical I question. I don't agree with it. I don't think that we should do anything like that because in 100 years, we'll be having our uh, ancestors arguing about how black Americans were enslaving black Americans and it wasn't white people's fault. <laughs> you know, like they do right now with slavery out of Africa. So, you know, I don't think that's the right way to go. I think these things need to end. We don't need to take them over. We don't need to become the slave master. We need to end slavery, and, period. And shout out to Brother Quabana, um up there in where is he at? Uh, Gary, Indiana with Clear the Airways Project and that whole Gary, Indiana community which came together, organized, and kept uh, I don't know if it was CCA or GL Group, but they kept them from building a private prison. They tried to come in with that pitch, talking about all oh, the jobs it's going to create, the taxes it's going to be providing for the county, and that's a doggone lie, because the GL Group and the CCA have registered as real estate. 
they reformatted themselves as real estate companies and and therefore they are able to take advantage of those tax loopholes set up for the wealthy and so you know shout out to those people they didn't say well you know what uh we do have high unemployment in the black community in gary so maybe building this private prison will be a good way for them to provide for their families you know Oh, I'm just so glad that that community stood together and stood for justice and and and, mm. and uh, kept that prison plantation from being built in their community. I've met along my path a number of groups and people individually who have done much the same, prevented prisons from being built. And they are among the nobody that people keep saying are doing things. Nobody is doing anything, according to much of what we hear these days. But these people behind the scenes are doing something and getting it done. So shout out to everyone fighting to keep prisons out of their communities. Well, one thing that I don't think, because y'all post a whole lot of stories, I don't know which ones y'all choose, but I do want to mention this in uh, regards to the impact of the DOJ decision. And that's going to really have a big impact, man, because there are 13 federal prisons here in North Carolina that's managed by the GEO group and uh, maybe a couple by the CCA. But I've been uh, definitely, you know, keeping up with my local news. And that's that's one of the things that's been coming out in the news locally here is that that's that will end up closing 13 uh, federal prisons that are being managed by the the uh, private prison industry here in the state and geo group being the largest you know i haven't heard anything about any closings uh, that's one of the things i have but i haven't read every article but i didn't hear anything about any closings i heard about them phasing out the use of private prisons now if these prisons actually own the facilities i suspect that they will probably knowing what the doj uh does where they, like you said they say one thing and do another rather than free anybody as governor jerry brown was told to do a couple of years ago they're just going to move them to federal or state prisons which would likely include human trafficking or just hire people directly to man they hire their own prison guards and those guards wouldn't be working for the cca or geo group you know what i'm saying they, they'll just all of a sudden be converted to federal employees or something. So, I mean, it's just so many things, but you, you're right. I mean, it's too early, you know, um, it's not too early to talk about closing. And I have seen an article where they were saying, well, what are they going to do then? If you got X amount of, of prisoners in federal prisons being managed, uh, are they going to let those people go? Is President Obama going to do a mass commutation and let all these nonviolent uh, um, so-called drug offenders and, and in there for other victimless crimes? Is he going to let them go? Or are they going to do what I just said? They're going to fire the private uh, guards and, and what have you by removing the management of the private companies. But then, you know, they're going to have a, a, what they call that, a job fair to replace those, you know, uh, uh, people. And, and then Barack Obama, CEO of USAE, can then point it and say, hey, I created jobs. You know, uh, if you're listening to this program, make no mistake about it, slavery and the way it was embedded in every aspect of our culture during the uh, pre-1865 era is the same way today. It's in everything we do. 
all around you. You can't even go to McDonald's without getting a hamburger that was made by a prisoner. You can't go to Starbucks without drinking a cup of coffee whose cup was made by a prisoner. You can't celebrate veterans without knowing that prisoners built the components that are in the Patriot missiles and things like that. And, you know, uh, service to air missiles and they're making their uniforms and their helmets. It's in everything we do. And rest assured, there are more than a few cities and counties and even states, entire states like the state of Mississippi, who are completely dependent on this system continuing and without it, they will fail. I know here in South Carolina, it's our number one industry. Uh, I don't know about North Carolina. Is it the number one industry as well in North Carolina, Scotty Reed? No, it's not. Yeah, here in South Carolina, we have 24 uh, adult facilities, and it employs nearly 7,000 people directly in the prison industry. Um, so if we were to ban or release, you know, 80% or 70% of the prisoners here in South Carolina, this country, this state would fail unless they had some alternative. So maybe that's something we ought to start thinking about is alternatives. Uh, hey, I got an alternative for you. I'll tell you another way you can empty them jails and prisons. Legal, just simply legalizing cannabis. Okay, uh, as you know, I've been talking about Colorado legalizing cannabis, and I was going over some of the statistics and reports put out by the Drug Policy Alliance, and they were saying, man, how there were eighty percent uh, drops in certain kind of arrests, which is the very arrest that they arrest us the most for, and that is the sale, the cultivation, and the uh, possession of cannabis. And so since Colorado has totally legalized it, man, they was like, man, the, that was the masses of people that was filling up the courts. And they've seen doggone near a 97% decrease in those type of court cases, man. And I was like, dang. And so then the slave catchers in Colorado, since 21 and over is off limits, you can't arrest them for possession or distribution or cultivation. So now what the slave catcher doing is they now focusing on those who are under the age of 21, okay, and, and those people who sell to them. And, and so but just legalizing cannabis Right there, man, has we should start seeing in the near future a reduction in the prison population in Colorado. But one thing, though, that we should be focusing on is that there are still people in Colorado jails on state charges for the very things that have been made legal. So they should have their sentence commuted uh, and pardoned or whatever. But they need to get out. And, and we need people in Colorado pushing for that. I know in uh, Compton, what they did was they offered licenses first, uh, first to, uh, ticket licenses to people who had, been, who had been incarcerated or arrested for marijuana uh, possession or use. So uh, they've legalized marijuana out there, and they've got these places that are selling them, and they're offering these licenses to people who have suffered for the incarceration of doing what they're doing legally right now. Well, you mean giving them license to sell? Yes. Business yes. license? Yeah, they're putting them as first in line to get these licenses wow, that's, to sell marijuana from uh, establishments. I hadn't heard that. 
Uh, I think we went over it a few months ago here on New Abolitionist Radio, which is why I remember. We go over so I'll, much, I'll man. at some point and pull it up and share it with the audience. Yeah, we go over it so much. This has been the New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, we were talking about the DOJ's historic decision to phase out private prisons, and uh, I don't want to make that the whole show, but I do just want to come with some, uh, I guess, my final thoughts on what I think, and they're very similar to what Scotty thinks. Uh, be careful right now. There's a hustle going on. The only reason they're doing any of this is because they're being forced to do that. There, there was no talk of this four years ago. There was no talk of this at the State of the Union address. They acted like they were not aware, and even as recently as just a month ago, the Attorney General of the United States of America acted like she didn't know nothing at all about private prisons. So within a month's time, suddenly they have become so enlightened. Don't believe it for a second. As I said, they're doing this because they have little choice but to do this. The public outcry, the public awareness, uh, the public's ability now to see through this BS has become reached to the point where they have very little choice or lose their positions uh, in in their industries. So um, just be careful of the hustle. Max. I know this. Yes, sir? Yeah, you said we had a guest. Uh, we did have somebody call on the studio line, uh, area code 347. Who do we have? Um, Sunday Moses. Oh, peace and welcome back, Brother Sunday Moses. Uh, let me just introduce you real quick. Uh, Sunday has been on the program before. He was one of our former writers of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. As a matter of fact, he's one of the reasons that we even started calling it a segment such so we could recognize brothers like himself, brothers and sisters and children who have been freed from these prisons of slavery. And uh, he left prison uh, in 2013 as a free man after 18 years and being framed by a crooked the Brooklyn DA, uh, what was the, 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 they're not DA, the detective's name again? Mr. Lewis, Detective Lewis right. Garcella. Lewis Garcella, Lewis Garcella, who was responsible for many, many others being framed as young men and children during those times. And recently, for the past three years, you've still been waiting for them to go forward with your exonerations, right? And apparently they've been yeah. dragging their feet on this, and you've been in communication with uh, Brooklyn District Attorney, uh, Ken Thompson's office trying to get this thing settled, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, please tell us, tell us, or share with the world what it is you want them to know, and uh, give us an update on what's happening. And once again, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, brother Cindy. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um. Well, right now, where the case is, is uh, it's been 
installed in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, and uh, I've submitted a, a, a motion, so it's before a judge, but now, you know, I've, I've since had, you know, the motion's been pending for over a year, and um, I've since had about four district ADAs uh, on a case. For one reason or another, they they they, they switched with one left the office, one retired, this and that. So you know that's the type of you know I think um, um, malice intent that they have with that because I, I don't think that it takes um, um, three years to complete a hearing that would probably only take two days. You know, so that's where it's at right now. And so now the judge, you know, I just went to uh, I actually just went to court. Um, um, day before yesterday, and uh, and the judge is kind of you know um, giving them a timeline. So it was actually adjourned to December fifth. So you know it's, it's dragged on to December fifth, and um, you know I'm I'm letting the world know that you know um, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office and Ken Thompson, you know, are not doing um, a great job. I think that. You know he's done some things. Let me let me let me clear that up a little bit because I think that he's done some great things. But when you look at what Charles Hines, Charles Hines was in office um, seven terms, and in seven terms Charles Hines did many great things as well. But what overshadowed Charles Hines and what ultimately got him out of office was some of the other things that he did. So I say that all in all to say that you can do many great things, but one thing can overshadow the many great things, right? So, and that was the Charles Times is a, is a pure example. So you can't now come in and repeat the same things that they're doing. And that's kind of like what I see happening with me. And I'm, and I'm not the only one as well as, you know, several others that, you know, I'm in contact with as well. Wow. So what is your status at this point now with them dragging their feet? Well, right now, as of right now, I, I still remain on life parole. I still have to report to a parole officer. I still have a curfew, and I still have to um, adhere to parole stipulations, you know, which is um, several of them. So, so here I'm. Here I am, still um, under the grip of the charge, and still That's being great. penalized, right? And still being penalized. And I wanted to be clear that I can also go back to prison without breaking the law because yeah. parole stipulations is not the law it's stipulations such as curfew and things of that nature right and so I'm suffering from that this is this is three years later and this is things that have been acknowledged this, you know it's not like you know the media has acknowledged the parole board itself and this is why you know I was released the parole board itself is um, has acknowledged that I'm innocent of the crime so that's why I was released but the parole board is exclusive from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Man, so like you said, you can go to prison now without even breaking the law. Let me ask another question. Are you paying for your own probation? Because, you know, they do that. They, they charge yes. you for your own probation. Yes. yes. So you're paying for your own probation at this time. And are you yes. wearing any type monitors as well? No. Okay. Is this... It's terrible, man. My heart is going out to you right now. So you had to deal with 18 years of being framed by a dirty cop that everybody knows is dirty. Then you got your name cleared in court, and now you've got the district attorney's office 
dragging their feet are actually clearing your name as a court rule, right? Yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, and, 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 for these things, like this probation that you're on, you're subject to the fear of going right back to that hellhole at any moment for any reason. Yes, yes, even if it's by mistake, you know, even if it's by mistake. One of my stipulations is no police contact, you know, and, and, and given the circumstances of what we see, the turmoil that America is in today, we know that that's not hard at all. Right, you know, right. you as, as an African-American, right, as an African-American in, 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 in Kings County, Brooklyn, you know, that's not a hard thing to encounter, you know. So so yeah. these are one of the stipulations. It's just, you know, God's blessing. This hasn't happened in three years that I've been home. I've managed to, you know, stay clear of these things, you know, with the grace of God. But who knows, you know, who knows? You know, you watch the news and you see unfortunate things happen, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, um, 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 you know, I can, it can happen to me as well, you know, so, you know, given, you know, totality, when you look at the whole situation, you say, you know, is this justice? You know, when you put that out there to the people and to the public, you ask them, you know, is that justice? And I don't think that you'll have one person that will come back and say no, and if there were, then I would like to hear that explanation because with all the facts, that stood out in my case. And I'm not asking them, this is not, at this point, I'm not asking them to exonerate the case. What I'm asking them is to hold a hearing, grant a hearing, and let a judge decide what is state. Examine that evidence. That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking you to exonerate. If, if, if the DA's office feels that, you know, for some reason or another that I may have, I may be guilty, okay, then have a hearing. There's a process for that. That's what I'm asking for because I'm confident. I know that I didn't do the crime, though, that I'm innocent. I'm confident in that evidence. So I have no problem going forth. I've been forthcoming and I've been, and I've been accommodating during this whole process. You know, I gave them my DNA. They called in. They wanted my DNA. I could have refused that. That was the option. But I didn't take that option because I wanted to accommodate the investigation. So I gave them the DNA. Uh, they interviewed me. They interviewed all the witnesses. All of them were accommodated. So... There shouldn't be any reason why this is, has dragged on so long. And then you wonder why, you know, what is, you know, the real reason why I'm taking this long? What is the real reason? You know, I Chicago the might be the answer to that question. What happened in Chicago very well might be the answer. If you remember, uh, there was another dirty detective in Chicago who uh, did the same things, but they ended up with a class action lawsuit, the largest in U.S. history, as a matter of fact. And maybe they're afraid that they'll have to deal with the same thing here. Because as it is right now, they're not giving you anything, right? I mean, like, you no. have no compensation for 18 years of your life loss, of you being framed no. by this system and then thrown under the bus and treated like just a commodity. You haven't gotten anything for that. As a matter of fact, you're suffering right now what our brother Christopher Irving out of Baltimore has coined as collateral consequences. So you're still suffering from uh, something that you never did at all. Yeah. And you have to look yeah. at this Democrat sword over your head. So maybe Ken Thompson's office is aware that if you guys ever got together and decided to start what Chicago did, a class action lawsuit, it could likely uh, break the bank, so to speak. Yeah. So they don't have to pay you anything as long as you're in this status. But once this status ends, you can move forward in getting your reparations and compensation yeah. for this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when you said why, I guess the obvious is pretty clear. The, the, the reasons can be pretty clear in, in that right. manner, at least. Right. All right. 
is there anything we can do here at New Abolitionist Radio to help you other than getting you, keeping your story out there in such a way as uh, they can't hide from it, that they have to face it, so, uh, you know, to present it to our audience? Is there anything else that we can do to help you with this? Well, I think I think that um, I think that um, continuing to um, put the word out about um, my story and others, and um, and um, allowing me to come on the show every now and then to update you on what's going on because this is something that, um, as we can see in 2016 in this day and age, this is not an isolated incident. So when you conflate that with not only wrongful imprisonment, which, you know, according to the National Registry of Exoneration, is at an all-time high. At this point, and and, um, police and police and community relations at a time where it's, you know, disrupted at an all-time high with shootings and stuff like this. I think that it goes hand-in-hand. Wrongful conviction... And these and these um, innocent men being shot, and and communications between communities and officers. I think that it all go hand in hand. So I think that continuing to explain and let the community know not only um, what happened, but what are they right, and, um, and 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 allowing me to come on and even you know explain some of those things explain my struggle and explain some of the, you know, you know um, the progress in my case and also, you know, because I think that the conclusion to my case will come. And I would like to come back on the show and um, speak about some of the things, you know, some of the highs and lows of of, of the process. Right. Um, my brother, we, we wish you all of the uh, good karma in the world that things come to you as they should and I believe that at some point um, you're going to have your name cleared completely, your freedom returned completely, and compensation for the damages that have occurred to you. And uh, not you, but many others. We are fighting hard to get recognition for what is occurring across the country to young men and women like yourself uh, who are being coerced and, 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 and Railroaded literally into modern day slavery and human trafficking. Even to this point right now, we're still making money off of you right now today. And I would hope that if, when you do get that, when, when you're blessed in that way, you remember our fight here at New Abolitionist Radio and maybe help us as well. Of course, of course. This is, a, um, this is, um, um, in my opinion, this is a, um, this is a lifelong fight and a lifelong struggle. So even after my personal triumph has gained, there's still people that's in a struggle who I've left behind, who I personally know. And, um, and so, you know, this is going to be a lifelong thing, you know, it's not going to stop. And, um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll be welcome to help. I want to ask you another question as a person with personal experience, both inside and out about the prison work strike that's scheduled for September 9th on the anniversary of the Atticus, uh, prison uprising. Right. Uh, are you aware of it? How do you feel about that? And are you in contact with people inside who is aware of it? And uh, do you know of any other places that are participating? I'm, I'm, I am in contact with people who are inside, but I don't think that they're very much aware of it. But um, but I definitely can um, spread the word and uh, and get it involved. And and I personally feel that um, I personally feel that is 
that is that is a great thing because I think that the prison system is um is 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 are using the inmates as a um as a slave trade basically. Indeed, there's like when you were sitting in there, they were trading your body on uh, uh, your your body's value on Wall Street in the form of prison stocks. So people were oh, just yeah. you know buying and trading your life away, Be counting yeah. you, counting you as a bed when in fact that yeah. bed was a body. Yeah, and 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 to make it even more interesting, I became a certified um, upholsterer, working in the prison workshop um um core craft and um in Auburn correctional facility and and I became a, um a certified um upholsterer and I came home and I can't find a job for a few reasons one that one being that I'm on parole and so you know it hinders it hinders and it, it's ironic how you can you can they, they'll, they'll use you to um to make this stuff and to gain a trade and do it for big companies while you're in prison, and when you come home, that those opportunities are not um, offered to you the same. Further collateral consequences. Even after you've served your time, you still have to suffer the stings of uh, something that you were supposedly now uh, freed from. It's a terrible circumstance. Brother Scotty Reed, would you like to ask any questions? And I don't know if Johanan has called in yet, but he personally invited you, from what I understand. And uh, he yeah. may have a question for you if he's here as well. No, Johanan hasn't joined us, so he must have got held up at work. Um, as that's usually why he doesn't. Yeah, he um, did. He did. I spoke to him. He did something. He would be. He would be a little held up, but um, but that's okay. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't I don't really have any questions but just want to welcome you home and you know I'm just very impressed that you still have a will to fight past your own circumstances and that you're remembering those that are still uh where you were on that prison plantation. So just welcome home brother and um you know keep up the the work towards abolitionism. Thank you. Thank Indeed. you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's very heartfelt. And thank you. Thank you for the support. And if you can, my brother, uh, contact your people on the inside and let them know that this strike is scheduled. We, uh, what they're looking to do is have them stop doing everything. Don't make your bed. Don't sweep a floor. Don't flip a hamburger. Don't do anything at all except be a prisoner. That's it. Gotcha. And, and that's going gotcha. to take a lot of effort. And I understand sometimes these brothers and sisters, it's their only way of you know, providing for themselves the things that they need as a necessity. So we're asking for them to make this sacrifice for at least a month so we can smack this country in the face with the reality of what is occurring here, a $900 million a year industry, which is prison slave labor. Gotcha. I'll do that, I'll do that immediately. I'll be glad to do that. Indeed, brother, and thank you so much, and God bless. We look forward to hearing from you again here on New Abolitionist Radio. Peace, brother Sundi Moses. Thank you. Have uh, thank you for having me, and good night. Good night. Good night. Man, it breaks my heart to think that they, you know, he's still suffering this. Like, 
and it might even be worse to a degree than being in prison because now you have to go with the fear of going into prison. You didn't have the fear of going to prison when you're well, already I'm, there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, though, um, he'd rather be on the outside than the inside, even with that fear. I'm sure of that, yes, yeah, indeed. But, but, it's a but new, you're right, though. Kind of suffering that's, that's like psychological torture. They're psychologically torturing him uh, right now. And so, you know, for them to hold that over his head and he's still on probation. But again, you know, just using his case, but to look at it more generally, you guys have done an excellent job, you and Johanna, in explaining that whole side of the slave industry, of the probation part. And that's where the GEO group and these private prisons have been trying to diversify themselves. And we reported on this because in a way they kind of seen this coming because they know that we have existed. I mean, we were calling into their conference calls and listening into their quarterly financials. And so don't think they not aware of us. All the media we've been putting out with their names and, and stuff on the internet. So they are aware of us. And so they know that this day was coming, that they were under assault. And so the, what they've been trying to do is diversify, not so much in operating the plantation, but then managing those on probation and then providing the cheap, shoddy health care. So they're trying to diversify. That's how they're, what I see them doing in terms of the intelligence reports I'm seeing on how they plan on surviving. But we, I, I got news for them. We coming after you. When we ain't coming, we're not going to stop until you're dead. Well, you know, you're right. They do know who we are. And uh, I have been told and informed myself that uh, I, I may be in some danger when I get to Missouri because of the efforts that we've done. Uh, we reported here on this radio program on more than one occasion about prisons being shut down, thanks in some small part to our effort, and costing cities like Eden their 275 jobs, like out in uh, Texas, where they had the immigrants there, I believe it was... Uh, what was it, like 1,200 beds that they originally scheduled for, and they had 3,000 people living in tents outside. And uh, we helped to shake up those places, and eventually a few of them ended up being shut down. And there are people out there who don't want to lose their income, don't want to lose their jobs, and see us as a threat to that uh, institution and to their livelihoods. And we are. There's no doubt about it. We're a threat to your livelihood. We are here to shut you down. You better get a new job. Go learn to flip burgers or something because we don't want you doing this anymore and it's not going to be around that much longer. I mean, really, if your city fails because the only thing holding it up is slavery, it deserves to fail. Am I wrong, Scott? No, man. I'm, I'm again. I'm with you, Max. Indeed, brother. Indeed. Well, we're here on New Abolitionist Radio today. We've got another couple stories to come up, but just let me give out the telephone number one more again, in case anybody wants to call in with a comment or a question. Uh, our number is one six one four six four one seven one five three six six zero. Access code is five four nine zero three two pound. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Um, unless we have any calls coming in, I'll move on to our next story. Yeah, go ahead to the next story. 
All right. Uh, well, the next one is coming out. As I said, is you know we got to count our victories when we can get them. And this comes from NBC News. The Justice Department says poor people cannot be held when they can't afford bail. And we have been talking about this here now for years, where we've told you that there are only two countries in the entire world that literally use bail bondsmen, and that's because most of the nation sees this as unethical practices where people are literally hunting human beings for, for, for their income. And um, now we've got this ruling coming out from the federal court, and it's by Pete Williams. It says, holding defendants in jail because they can't afford to make bail is unconstitutional. <laughs> Again, with the unconstitutional. We are reciting to you from federal judges and the Department of Justice allegations based on facts of constitutional violations. I think we need to look deeper into what the uh, consequences of constitutional violations are, so maybe we can start applying them, because there has to be something. Anyway, to continue with the story, it's the latest step by the Obama administration in encouraging state courts to move away from imposed fixed cash bail amounts and jailing those who can't pay. Bail practices that incarcerate indigent individuals before trial solely because of their inability to pay for their release violates the 14th Amendment, the Justice Department said in a friend of court brief citing the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection. The filing came in the case of Maurice Walker of Calhoun, Georgia. He was kept in jail for six nights after police arrested him for the misdemeanor offense of being a pedestrian under the influence. He was told he could not get out of jail unless he paid the fixed bail amount of $160. Justice Department civil rights lawyers said that said in their brief that courts must consider a person's images and look at other ways of guaranteeing an appearance in courts. Fixed bail schedules that allow for the pretrial release of only those who can play without accounting for the ability to pay, the government said, unlawfully discriminates based on indigence. A federal judge in January ruled in Walker's favor, ordering the city to let those arrested on misdemeanor offenses be released under own recognizances and to make other changes in its post-arrest procedures. In appealing that, court, that order, the city said the preset amounts of the city's bail schedule are tied to the seriousness of each offense and are specifically allowed under Georgia law. Georgia law. That's the state that has one of the strangest constitutions in America where you can be turned into a slave for contempt of court and it's in their constitution. I mean, but they do that all throughout the United States. I mean, um, I know that specifically in their constitution, but in practice, in pattern in practice, even if it's not in other states' constitution, that's what they do when they lock up people for failure to pay child support or they fail behind or what. They don't care if you lost your job. They don't care if you got injured and you're waiting on a settlement. They don't care. You are in violation of this court order. I'm sending you to jail. That's the same thing, ain't it? You're in contempt. <laughs> I guess you, I guess you're right on that. But with Georgia, they are the only ones in the nation that actually have it written in their constitution. <laughs> I, I do pertain that it is unconstitutional, and I said it's illegal. And I had a conversation with an attorney, this young black uh, attorney, and um, she was telling me that's how they get around it. She said, "You're right." But that's how they get around it. They're not sending people to jail or, or for 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 uh, being in debt. 
Because then the question of debtors' prisons and jails comes into question. Well, I mean, if you're putting people in jail because they fell behind on what you say they owe some money, that's a debt. And she said, well, but the way they get around it is they're putting you in jail for violating the judge's order, so you're in contempt. So they play all kind of word games, man. Well, one of our stories tonight is in regards to Arkansas, where there's a lawsuit being filed for debtors' prisons, which, uh, you know, on more than one occasion, we've shown that debtors' prisons are back in a large way. And here we have a lawsuit coming out in Arkansas that is uh, aiming directly at that to show that it is here. And it is constitutional, and it is illegal, and it is actually race-based. Because when you look at these rates of poverty, do you know who's in, who, who dominates uh, in poverty? And there are 50 million people who live at or below the poverty level. Well, listen, Abolitionist Radio, when we come back, we're going to talk about Arkansas. We'll be right back up with messages. Black Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. You know, we were just going over the ABC News uh, about the story regarding bail, cash bails, and being unconstitutional. Well, I just would like to read the repeal, the appeal that came from the city itself so you can understand where their mind is at. They said a system of unsecured recognized bonds the city said in its appeal, greatly reduces the incentive for defendants to appear. So basically, they're just saying, you know what, innocent until proven guilty doesn't matter. We're just going to go ahead and lock you up and make sure you stay here so when your court comp date comes and we need to railroad you, we know exactly where to find you. And you say this is in Arkansas? Well, this new story that I'm about to go into is coming out of Arkansas, indeed. And it's not the first one that we've heard of these class action lawsuits. Yeah, there's another one going on in Louisiana as well. And Missouri, too. I mean, didn't just last week we reported on 13 cities being targeted in a class action lawsuit over debtors' jails. And I made the right. statement. I made the statement that the Missouri Constitution absolutely allows to put you in the debtors' prisons because it has an exception clause, just like the Thirteenth Amendment. And so I was saying right. that they might lose because even I mean the good thing about the suit is that it's just bringing it to light to people that you know even if they end up losing, it's going to prove that they that debtors' jails are actually legal. And it has that exception clause because I'm telling you, man, they I, they will lose that lawsuit if it's based on what the law says, what the uh, state constitution says. And I'm I'm just wondering, whoever filed that lawsuit, did they even consult the constitution to see if what they were doing it was illegal? But Johanna said that this is just a continuation of the lawsuits. I guess you know some people got some settlements out of Ferguson. You know, out of that whole deal of uh, uh, being jailed and and whatnot, cycled in and out of jails. Um, so it'll just be interesting to follow that court case. But I'm speaking of Missouri, and so you're saying this one is pertaining to Arkansas. 
Yes, indeed, Scotty. Uh, and, you know, we've been asking for this for a couple of years now, for people to get together and start making these lawsuits against these illegal activities. Yeah, RICO. Like, specifically in Vermont, they literally have four debts as the excuse for you to be an, a slave. Well, this story comes out of Think Progress, and it's uh, titled... A guard at the, or it's titled uh, Arkansas City Accused of Jailing Poor People for Bouncing Checks as Small as $15. And it goes, Nikki Petrie could not have known when she wrote a check for $28.93 in the fall of 2011 that it would end up costing her hundreds of dollars and weeks spent in jail. Petrie works where she can, but thanks to physical ailments, frequently relies on her family and friends to support her and her daughter. So when her when the check she wrote was returned for insufficient funds, she was funneled into the hot check division of the Sherwood District Court in Sherwood, Arkansas. That courthouse, according to a lawsuit brought by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and the Law and American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, of Arkansas on Tuesday, has developed the practice of charging low-income people fines and fees they can't afford and then jailing them when they can't pay, essentially running a debtor's prison. That's what happened to Petri. She has allegedly been arrested at least seven times over the last 15 years, spending more than 25 days in jail, and has already paid $640 for bouncing a check of less than $30. She currently sits in the Pulaski County Jail because she can't come up with the $2,656.93 in additional fees, according to the lawsuit. There are many individuals like Nikki Petri who are incarcerated for their inability to pay, said Kristen Clark, executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and the Law, on a call with the media. The lawsuit from her organization, the ACLU of Arkansas, is filed on behalf of five plaintiffs, four low-level income residents of the city of Sherwood who have been allegedly jailed over an inability to pay fines and fees associated with bounced checks, all of whom were still either incarcerated or under threat of being put back in jail. And a resident of the city was suing over the alleged misuse of his tax money to run the debtor's prison scheme. It names the city of Sherwood, Pulaski County, and Judge Miles H. Hales III, who presides over the Sherwood District Court as defendants. The Sherwood District Court of Arkansas epitomizes the criminalization of poverty and the corrupting effect of financial incentives on our local courts, Clark said, calling the practices brazen and unconstitutional. That's a word you hear here a lot, unconstitutional. According to the lawsuit, the problems start before residents even get inside the courthouse. Lines stretch out from the court's doors, and in order to enter, defendants are allegedly required to sign a form waiving their right to counsel without being informed about the consequences. Once inside, the court allegedly makes no inquiry as to whether the defendants can pay the fines and fees that are imposed upon them. Those who can't pay have an arrest warrant issued for them, and, and police officers knock on people's doors, according to the lawsuit, threatening to arrest them if they can't pay a given amount of money on the spot. Man, these cops must have the, uh, what's that little car thing that you use on, on your phone? Square. They must have Square. The police are going to be running around with Square, like, let me take your credit card for this right now. If they don't, they're taken into custody. 
what is especially egregious about this is it gets people into a cycle of jail and poverty and debt that they can't possibly dig their way out of, said Rita Sklar, executive director of the ACLU of Arkansas on the media call. You can walk into a courtroom with a bad $15 check and walk out with no less than $400 in fines and fees, and that is just the beginning. The lawsuit also claims that the debtor's prison scheme serves to enrich the government and court system, bringing $12 million in revenue from the hot check court over the last five years that gets funneled to the city, Pulaski County Prosecutors, and the Sheriff's Office. This has been going on for at least 25 years, to our knowledge, Sklar said. They're really leeching off the people who have the least ability to pay. There's more to the story. You can read it on New Abolitionist Radio. Again, I think you understand what's being said right here, right now. It's unconstitutional. It's an aspect of modern-day slavery. And the goal is not for you to pay the fines, although those $12 million in revenue that they brought in over the last five years is very nice. They prefer to have you in the jails and prisons because then you're guaranteed to make an income for them every single day. And you are subject to what we look at as a genocide because you're taken out of your community, unable to take care of your family, unable to pro- procreate, unable to do anything except become a commodity in a bed. You, you know, when I hear these stories like that, I, it just makes me just feel so blessed and thankful that I live in one of the probably probably uh, safest, one of the more safer areas in the United States, you know, because I, man, I've been living here for a long time and I have never heard of this kind of stuff going on. But since I started doing this program four years ago, I just, I'm just, man, every, I'm just at a loss of words right now, Max. I mean, we just uncover story after story after story after story after story. It, again, this is why I have po- uh, this is why I have traumatic stress disorder. You know, because I'm affected by reading these stories about what's happening to other people. It doesn't matter that it's not happening to me. It's not. It doesn't matter that it's 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 a probability that it won't happen to me because of my geographical location, because of how the slave catchers operate around here. I can go months without seeing a slave catcher. Okay, so so when I hear these stories, man. It just makes me it just makes me angry, it makes me sad. I have a whole range of emotions. And then when I hear people talking about a pledging allegiance to a flag or getting mad at some black girl in the Olympics because she ain't put her hand over her heart when all of this is going on in this country right here and now and been going on for a very, very, very long, 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 long time. It ain't just start happening 10 years ago. This been going on. Yeah. So, uh, man, my heart goes out to those people. Um, you know, just the people that are trying to help them. May the creator keep you safe, keep you blessed, and what have you. But, you know, I'm just so sad at this, man. Again, I, I'm just at a loss of words, Max, because why do we keep tolerating this, man? We keep tolerating this, and we keep sending our children off to go kill other people in other lands, uh, allegedly so that we can stay free. But we ain't free. We live in a police state. We live in a place that ain't never gave up slavery. 
because it's just too much money that has been made. It's always been the foundation of the economic uh, it's the economic foundation of this country. When you think about how many people rely on this industry for jobs, rely on this industry for cheap goods, and and man, and then the very people who have the least resources, they are the ones that's being targeted in these sort of schemes. It, it just makes me sick, man. It's like that every time. It's the poorest people who pay the most every single time, and they just leech off of them like vampires. Yeah, uh, and, and then you hear people, Max, that sit up there and say, oh, poor people don't pay taxes, and they're not contributing anything to to society. Man, uh, Ferguson would have been broke if not for the poor people, that they just taking, their, taking everything they got, man, a little bit. You know, you take a little bit from a person over and over and from all these different people, it adds up to a lot. So these people absolutely do pay taxes, you know, because I that's why I started calling slave catchers. Also, you know, their other duty is is tax levying. A lot of these fines and whatnot, those are those are taxes. Those they are levying taxes. Since you didn't make enough for them to tax your income or what, well, we'll get it through you, get it from you through taxes and fines. I mean, excuse me, tickets and fines, or by you being in our jails and whatnot. It's disgusting, man. How anybody can sit up there and say, you know, well, I, I'm not going to say that again because I feel blessed to live where I live, and 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 you know, just how it is here is very peaceful. Okay, but but. When I hear people say, oh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. America, USA, it's the greatest place to live on earth. And, and, you know, you look at some of these other countries, and I listen to those people, and I just say to myself, you really don't have a clue as to what is going on. You really don't. You really don't have a clue. You're not paying attention. So, anyway, Max, that's how I feel. Indeed, brother. And, you know, I feel like Brother Sunni Moses feels. I, I can't walk out the house in any day, anywhere, and not be concerned that my freedom could end for any reason at that moment. My life could end for any reason at that moment. Because as long as slavery exists, ain't none of us free. None of oh, us. Oh, yeah, at I'm any under... moment, they can get anybody anywhere for anything. They'll roll up in your house if you're a young 20-something-year-old woman with a 5-year-old child for a littering ticket warrant shoot you in front of your child and shoot your child too yeah now i'm under no illusions though don't get it twisted i'm under no illusions i know that all i gotta do is cross a double yellow line or or go off the shoulder of the road because i was trying to change the radio station or something like that and if i get the wrong slave catcher that pulls me over i could be dead let alone put in well, slave out of state plates. Like I travel around periodically and without a state plates, you know, that just targets me right there. And we just saw recently another court case where judges declared that police cannot specifically target people for no other reason than out of state plates. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, how do you feel good about that industry and just the absurdity of people talking about good cops? There may be some good people who became cops, but I'm telling you, if they going along with the slave catcher's creed, then, you know, they cease to be good in my view. Well, 
I'm hoping that we can break the chains and not repeat history all over again and end up in a civil war. It is in the atmosphere. It is very possible that we could have an interior war, and I prefer that not happen. Uh, if we can find a way, if we can't find it with legislation and politics and all these other things, maybe our soldiers can rebel because you swore an oath to defend the Constitution. And you can listen to a program like this and many others and understand that the Constitution is being violated every day, all day, all across the board. And if you swore an oath to defend it and you're not defending it, then you are an oath breaker. Man, most people ain't in. Man, they ain't got nothing to do with that oath. People go in the military for college money because they can't find jobs, and that's a little bit of job security if you'll be a mercenary. Basically, they're just mercenary. Again, I'm former military, and um, you know my view of what I was doing really changed once I read Malcolm X's biography and I started getting a better understanding of how the world works. And, you know, racism and white supremacy is is a global agenda and it needs people to enforce that agenda. And that's why we have people in the military. That's what you know, whether they know it or not, that is what you're doing. You are enforcing, maintaining the empire. And I just hope that you will, like me one day, come to that realization and just say, you know what? It ain't worth it. It ain't, I got a little bit of job security. I can, I'll, I'll never go hungry because the mess hall's always open. I can see a doctor anytime I want to, ain't got to pay nothing. And, you know, uh, um, I work with some good people and have fun and travel and see the world. And, but you know what? Uh, what, our standard of living is coming at a cost, man, and a cost to other people. And I just don't feel good knowing that, you know, uh, my standard of living is only as such because of the policies of the United States to depress the economies of other countries and, and to keep the American dollar propped up. So I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to say to them other than you need to get out. You need to get out. You need to stop well, being part of, you know, the mercenaries for white supremacy. I think I should read these two more paragraphs from the Arkansas story because they are very relevant. And uh, I think that would just add more to what we're trying to say here. And then I want to move on to the Virginia governor's decision recently. Another thing that should be applauded. But uh, let's, let me just read this, what they said here. It says, uh, while the practice of jailing debtors was abolished centuries ago, and the Supreme Court was, has ruled that people can't be punished because they are poor, debtors' prisons have experienced a revival as municipalities scrounge for funding amid budget limitations and anti-tax sentiment, using court fines and fees to keep their systems running. Lawsuits against debtor prisons practice have been filed in a number of states, as we've just said here, including Alabama, Missouri, and Louisiana. The American Civil Liberties Union of Louisiana has found that the practice of routinely jailing people who are too poor to pay fines and fees is widespread throughout the state as the courts have become financially dependent on that kind of revenue. The same thing was uncovered in Ferguson, Missouri, after the police killing of Michael Brown, where police issued a huge number of traffic violations and those who can't pay the fines are jailed, while the payments do, that do come in raking millions of revenue. Uh, there you have it. It's, it's all about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. This is not the slavery that you used to know. This is the streamlined version, almost like an assembly line. And it has been going on now for 
45 years as we know it today and 150 years since the 1864 uh, Emancipation and the 13th Amendment. Now, let's talk about the what's going on out in Virginia as well. Uh, again, we should that's something that we should be applauding. You know, we talk about how we should take control of our local politics, but roughly 6 million men and women have been disenfranchised from voting because of felonies, which take away their rights as a citizen. Uh, even after they have served their time, they are still suffering these collateral consequences. This story comes out of NBC News again. And it says Virginia restores right to vote for two thousands of ex-felons. Nearly 13,000 former felons in Virginia had the right to vote restored Monday, and more could be re-enfranchised in time for the November election. Governor Terry uh, McAuliffe, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. McCullough, I believe his name is. I'm not sure. I'll look it up. He announced the rights restoration at a civil rights memorial in Richmond, restoring the rights of Virginians who have served their time and live, work, and pay taxes in our communities is one of the most pressing civil rights issues of our day. Mikolif said in his statement, I have met these men and women and know how sincerely they want to contribute to our society as full citizens again. Monday's announcement was the latest salvo in an ongoing battle between Mikolif, the Democrat, and Republican lawmakers over felon voting rights in the Old Dominion. In April, Nicholas announced a sweeping executive order which restored voting rights to all Virginians who had completed their prison sentences and any parole or probation. A total of, hold on to your seat, 206,000 people. State Republicans sued, calling the move a partisan effort to boost Nicholas' longtime ally, ally Hillary Clinton, in a key state last month. The state Supreme Court ruled Nicholas' order unconstitutional, saying he lacked the authority to issue a blanket rights restoration order. Virginia's ex-felon population, like in most states, is disproportionately, not most, all states. Change that language. Virginia's ex felon population, like in all states, is disproportionately African-American and likely leans Democratic. Well, you can see where we're going with here. We're celebrating that 13,000 people got their right to vote back, but 206,000 should have gotten their rights back. They did get their rights back. And uh, and his name is Terry McAuliffe. Um, Yeah. uh, McAuliffe, okay. Yeah, McAuliffe. Um, so yeah, they ruled that they ruled that he couldn't didn't lack the authority to give black blanket um, uh, pardons or commutations or whatever the order was uh, that he was taking. So he did them individually. He started yeah, doing I mean, them individually. I just so. read that was the next paragraph, and I hadn't seen it. It said he responded to the ruling by saying we embark on the time-consuming process of restoring rights individually to all eligible Virginians. He said at the time that it would complete the first 13,000, all those who registered to vote after having their rights restored by the original order, within a week. Since then, his office has admit, admitted that the process is taking longer than anticipated. See, this is why well, I don't, um, again, I'm not a partisan person. I'm not on a Democratic or Republican plantation. But, again, when these Republicans talk about, you know, um, 
um, liberty, justice for all, and democracy. They don't want black folks participating. And that's obvious when we see them take those kind of actions like that to, like here in North Carolina where they passed the voting ID law when there was no voting fraud. There were five cases of maybe very, you know, shaky allegations of voter fraud. One involved an old lady who voted twice who forgot she voted that morning. So it was just five cases out of all the multi-millions of ballots that have been cast. And, and they even said specifically and admitted that they were targeting black folks with this legislation. Now, I know some people out there that say your vote don't matter and not like that, but I'm, I have to wonder, if my vote don't matter so much, then why they spend so much money and effort in trying to stop people from voting? I mean, it should be the Republicans should have no problem with up 200,000 primarily black men and women getting their rights to vote back, right? Because the vote don't matter. It's not going to matter. It don't make a difference. So why are they trying to stop that then if it don't matter? See, that, that's, that's where I find holes in those arguments. Now, when you want to talk about presidential politics, as the Republicans are trying to allege, they de- like they know the minds of all 200,000 of these soon-to-be-eligible voters doesn't mean they're going to vote. just means that they have the right to vote. They are eligible to register and vote. Then how do they know that they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton? Hell, they might be in there causing Hillary Clinton and, and her husband. So, again, they, the facts be damned. It's just, you know, it, it's a war. It's a continuation of the war on black people. And Terry McAuliffe did the right thing here. Because if you serve your time, you you know, why are you still being punished? See, we're talking about lifetime punishments here, which are supposed to be unconstitutional. So, again, I could care less about the Constitution, even though I'll use it as a propaganda weapon to inform people, yeah, the Constitution say this, but this is what they're doing. They don't care nothing about the damn Constitution because if they cared about the Constitution, we wouldn't be seeing all of this. But then again, some of our problems are rooted in the Constitution and the fact that the 13th Amendment allows them to target us for slavery, you know, as punishment for crime and what have you. So this is a continuation of the disenfranchisement of the people that they target uh, you know the big the group they target the most for 21st century slavery. They don't want them to have any kind of rights, no Second Amendment rights, no Fourth Amendment rights, no nothing. You know voting, no nothing. In fact, we, we you know we gonna make it hard for you to get a job because you a felon and all this and that. And then we hope that you go out there and commit some more nonviolent victimless crimes, selling weed or or something to adults and or cause you can't find a job you out there selling your body but yeah we want you to do those things so we can put you where you making us the most money and that's in slavery so McCullough just did what was right I'm not going to give him any kudos for doing what's right but then again so many people don't do the right thing so I guess he does deserve a respect because so many people don't want to see things like this happen and, and know that you know what justice looks like so this is an example of justice. Whether these people vote or not, they should have the right to, to vote. Whether they want to or not, that's their decision as human beings, as people who pay taxes. That's taxation without representation. Seems to me that a bunch of wealthy old slavers wanted to start a war with Britain over that. So anyway, uh, good job, Terry McAuliffe and and. 
I'm glad to see that these 200,000 formerly enslaved people will have some measure of their rights restored. You mentioned earlier political parties, and if we're playing the game of follow the leader, it's easy to understand what the Republican Party represents. The Republican Party has went from the party of uh, Brother Frederick Douglass to the party of Donald Trump. And this is a blatant racist party. And those who are even inside of it feel very uncomfortable about it. But nonetheless, you still are a Republican, and he is your representative. Well, we got two more stories I'd like to squeeze in out of the many and many that we got on our list today. Uh, one is uh, another, what I guess would we call another victory for people who were incarcerated as youths. Um, and this one comes out of philly.com. Big shout out to uh, Janice Bryant out in Philly. It says, it's by Samantha Malamed, and it says, since the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in January that states, including Pennsylvania, must resentence those given mandatory life without parole terms as juveniles, Philadelphia District Attorney Seth Williams has signaled that parole will be the primary, perhaps only, means of release for the city's juvenile lifers, the largest such population in the entire world. Now, a federal judge who remanded two cases, one from Philadelphia and another from Delaware County, has said such a resentencing scheme accomplished by pairing a minimum sentence, such as 35 years, with a maximum of life would violate the high court's ruling. A sentencing practice that results in every juvenile sentenced with a maximum term of life regardless of the minimum term, does not reflect individualized sentencing. Timothy J. Savage, district court judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, wrote in both opinions. He added, excuse me, passing off the ultimate decision to the parole board in every case represents an abdication of judicial responsibility and ignores the Supreme Court's mandate. And that is what they're basically doing is just passing off their decision to these uh, faceless parole boards who harbor their own uh, attitudes, possibly racist, as we have heard here on New Abolitionist Radio with our guest out of Florida who explained her situation with her husband regarding the parole board year after year after year. And she mentioned at one point her husband went before the parole board and he was a model prisoner, but he uh, was looking he had been given a death sentence. I don't know if it was a husband or somebody her husband knew, but nonetheless, this gentleman was given a death sentence and told he would die of cancer in two years. And one of the parole board members told him, come see us in two years. That's the type of people that we need these decisions to. The Supreme Court... A lot of them, for, um, Max, are former cops, too. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of them cops, when they retire, move on to parole boards. Any way they can make their money within this system of slavery. The Supreme Court calls for individualized sentencing and said only juveniles who are irreparably corrupt may be sentenced, resentenced to life without parole. So if there's no hope for you to be uh, corrected, for your behavior to be corrected, then you can be resentenced to life without parole. But if there's any hope that you can be corrected, then you shouldn't have to look at life in prison for something you did at 12 or 11 or 14. Savage noted, that leaving the decision to the parole board means life imprisonment is still possible. If the sentencing court finds that the defendant is not incorrigible, it must impose it must impose a maximum sentence less than life to reflect that finding. 
One of the cases in question is that of Kimsis Songster, who was a 15-year-old runaway in 1988 when he and a friend fatally stabbed another teen in a southwest Philadelphia crack house. The others pertain to Trina Garnett, who was 14 in 1976, when she set fire in which two children died in Chester. She is intellectually disabled and schizophrenic and had been abused and homeless as a child. She was convicted of second-degree murder. Jeff Monhate, a Cozen O'Connor lawyer who has been working on Songster's case, said it was not, not clear how the opinion will affect Songster's resentencing proceedings, which have begun in Philadelphia Common Pleas Court. It remains to be seen how the court will act or react. If you want to read the rest of that story again on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Scotty, any final comments on that? No, sir. Before we take our break? No, sir. All right. Well, we're going to take our break. When we come back, I want to, you to see the face of a sociopath. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parker, Scotty Reed, Brother Johanna, and Elia may still come in a little later. We'll be right back after these messages. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Our next story in line comes from Daily Cause, and it says... Notorious Florida prosecutor Angela Corey just keeps getting worse and worse. One of the things that really brought out the uh, problems with this right here is in the story where it tells you how she has sent 77 children children to adult prisons uh, just recently. 65 of them were black. Is she the Florida prosecutor? Yes. In Trayvon Martin case? Yes. Okay. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Now, remember, we've told you here that statistically a fact that 95% of all prosecutors are white, 79% of them are white men. Some of them are sociopaths, racist sociopaths like this one. There's certainly no dearth of harsh prosecutors in America, but Angela Corey goes above and beyond even the very worst. As state attorneys, for Florida's 4th Judicial Circuit, which includes Nassau, Clay, and Duval counties, Corey has been one of the nation's most vindictive prosecutors. Corey made headlines in 2013 when she failed to convict George Zimmerman of the murder of Trayvon Martin. The irony is that Zimmerman's acquittal may be the only time her office managed to keep someone out of jail. Corey has been especially horrible when it comes to juveniles accused of criminal behavior. A new article on Corey in The Nation, the uh, traditional abolitionist newspaper, tells that story of Christian Fernandez, a 12-year-old boy who was accused of killing his two-year-old brother. Christian had lived a pretty rough life. His mother was only 12 years old when he was born, the product of a rape. In fact, mother and son were actually both in foster care at one point. Christian had been molested by one of his mom's ex-boyfriends, and another ex-boyfriend had shot himself in the head in front of him. Evidence indicates that Christian's culpability is dubious at best. His story was inconsistent, and his mother also ultimately pled to involuntary manslaughter. Yet, Corey decided it was appropriate to throw him in an adult prison. 
in the direction of Angela Corey, the prosecutor charged Christian with first-degree murder as an adult, which at the time meant that Christian would not only be kept in an adult jail pending the outcome of this case, but that he would face a mandatory sentence of life without parole before he even lost his baby fat. According to prosecutors, Christian had intentionally murdered David by smashing his head against a bookcase. Many other people were not so sure. Kids in adult prisons are often put in solitary confinement to keep them safe. Christian was no exception and was kept alone almost every minute of the day he spent in adult prison. Wow. Not only just putting him into slavery as a child, but also torturing him. He was 12 years old in solitary confinement and suddenly an orphan too. Christian is the only one. The nation reports that 77 kids have been charged as adults at Corey's discretion this fiscal year alone. 65 of them were black. In her jurisdiction, sends 75% of the young people charged as adults to prison or jail, the highest rate in any state. By contrast, Miami-Dade County raised it at around 12%. Unsurprisingly, Corey also loves the death penalty. Duval County, which includes Jacksonville, has only 5% of the state's population, but 25% of its death sentences. The Republican primary is August 30, and Corey faces two main opponents. Recent polls show Melissa Nelson, a former prosecutor, is leading by a significant margin. And this is a quote from the Florida Politics. It says, Nelson is among lapping, is almost lapping Corey, leading her 53 to 27% among likely Republican voters. Wes White is trailing far behind at 11%, while 9% of voters say they are unsure who to vote for. Propelling Nelson's huge lead is a strong sense of Corey fatigue. Asked whether Corey deserves to be reelected, or if it's time for someone new, 64% of the Fourth Circuit voters say it's time to make a change. All three candidates debated each other just recently, and uh, the nation will be posting more info on that. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, listeners to New Abolitionist Radio, the face of, an aboli- uh, the face of a sociopath who loves the death penalty and sends more children into adult prisons than any other prosecutor here in this nation. Are Florida state attorneys elected? Uh, according to this, yes. And that's what they're talking about, the election coming up. Okay. Yeah. Again, politics is local, people. Most of the stuff that affects us directly is, is, is coming from your local prosecutors, your local judges, your, your local cops, slave catchers. And, and so, again, man... I feel like that is where we should really be focused on, and I'm talking about a real community. I'm not talking about, you know, that word gets tossed around a lot, man, but how many of us are in a real community or acting like we're part of a community? We got to get our stuff together on down at the local level, man, and, and really organizing so that we can get these sort of people out, man. And not only should we be getting them out, man, we should be raising people up to, to take over those positions. People that well, we as you know. Can see, this is a Republican candidate, and we just was talking about how so many people who would vote against them are disenfranchised in every state. Right. That's true. And that's a purposeful thing. They're doing that on purpose. That's true. It's so many challenges, but, you know, what we're going to do, we can't give up. <laughs> We're going to end slavery, Scotty Reed. That's you, right. You, me, and everybody listening to my voice right now, that's our goal, to end slavery. And goal. we won't stop until it's done. 
But I'm telling you, man, I hear about these stories. It's hard for me to look at these people as people. You know, I don't see Angela Corey as a person, as a as a, a, a human being. Um, who, a genocidal maniac. Yeah, man. Her and what's the one name up there in Detroit for Wayne County, that prosecutor, uh, Kim something, I forget her last name, had Devontae Sanford. Locked up mm-hmm. all them years, knowing he was innocent, and a hitman had had confessed to it. I mean, dude, we're dealing with kids, man. And what what happened to these one women? Oh, we need women in these positions because they're so motherly, and you know, they're they'll be so more compassionate and humane. And man, they get up in there, they trying to show that they the better white supremacists than the male white supremacists. I can be just as bad as you, you know. So. Man. Yeah. Indeed, Brother Scotty. Well, we're coming to uh, the last parts of our program. We've got about 20 minutes left, a little less than that. And uh, I'm looking forward to our abolitionist in profile again. It's a relative of ours. It's my wife's direct uh, ancestor, Paul Cuffey. And oh, really? I, I, I didn't ask you to pick him. You just picked him on your own. It's a hell of a coincidence. So I'm real, really looking forward to this. Well, my wife is sitting here. She's also looking forward to hearing your recording of it as well. Because, yeah, that uh, again, one is about... A direct ancestor. That one is a little longer. I tried keeping the two minutes, but this guy was so fabulous, I had to just go ahead and, and just tell you as much as I could about him. And I have to issue a correction. I had published an article... Um, I don't publish many articles, but every once in a while I'll write something. And um, Pascal Robert and what's her name of Breaking Brown, Yvette Carnell, had put out a video saying Clarence, Tom- Clarence Thomas was the quintessential black nationalist. And I was saying that y'all, I don't know what definition of black nationalism y'all working off of, but I do, the Clarence Thomas does not represent black nationalism. And neither did W.B. Du Bois, and neither did Booker T. Washington. Because what none of those mean, not even Malcolm X. And really, it wasn't even Marcus Garvey wasn't a black nationalist. They were pan-Africanists, meaning that African-descendant people should work together no matter where they are. And they, they should establish trade with each other and with Africa. That's what a pan-African is. A black nationalist wants to establish an independent black nation. You can't have independent black nation. You can't have an independent black nation and then still be in up under a nation paying them taxes and, and being subject to all of their slave-catching laws and stuff like that. But So I said Martin Delaney was the first, ab- well, he was an abolitionist too. Martin Delaney, who we actually have featured as an abolitionist, I believe. But anyway, Martin Delaney is who I identified as the first U.S.-based or born uh, black nationalist. He was an abolitionist. He became the first commission officer in the Union Army. He uh, recruited a lot of black people to fight in the Civil War, and he commanded troops in the Civil War. So I was, and then at the end of the Civil War, he was like playing around in politics. I don't want to say playing around like he wasn't serious, but, you know, ran for political office, supported candidates, things of that nature. But then he was like, these people ain't going to never stop practicing racism, y'all. So we got to get up out of here. We need to go establish our own black nation. And he was looking at, you know, areas in South, South America or what have you. 
Um, so I had I said that he was the first, but actually, after reading Mr. Cuffey's bio today, he is the first documented black nationalist. Because right, right. after you will hear this man's story and how successful he was, he came to the same conclusion of Martin Delaney, except for about 100 years before Martin Delaney, or maybe 50 or 60 years before Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney came of age and in, in of his black nationalism during the Civil War. Paul Coffey was during the, the revolutionary period or, or the colonial period. This man, mm-hmm. I, I'm telling you, man, th- your wife has an uh, ancestor to be proud of. So whenever y'all are ready to get to that, we'll get to it. Indeed. Let me just do a quick introduction. And But first, I would like to say we would like to recognize here at New Abolitionist Radio the anniversary of Nathaniel Nat Turner's insurrection, uh, 1800 to 1831, the abolitionist who led the only effective sustained armed rebellion against slavery in August of 1831 in U.S. history. So shout out and recognition of the Nat Turner Rebellion here in Black August, celebrated this year. Our abolitionist in profile will be Paul Cuffey Sr., 1759-1817, a direct forefather from Travel Rain's family, and best known for his work in assisting free blacks who wanted to emigrate to Sierra Leone. Paul Kofi, 1759-1817, was an abolitionist, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and black nationalist. He is best known for his work in assisting free blacks who wanted to immigrate to Sierra Leone. He was born free on Cuddy Hunk Island in Massachusetts near New Bedford sometime around 1759. The exact date of his birth is unknown. He was the youngest of 10 children. His father, Kofi, also known as Kofi Slocum, was from the Ashanti Empire in West Africa. The elder Kofi was captured in Africa, enslaved and brought to New England at the age of 10. Paul's mother, Ruth Moses, was a Native American. The elder Kofi, a skilled tradesman who was able to earn his freedom, died when Paul Kofi was just a teenager. The younger Kofi refused to use the name Slocum, which his father had been given by the man who was enslaving him, and instead took his father's first name for his last name. Paul Kofi became politically active in his early 20s. In 1780, against the backdrop of the American Revolution, Kofi led a group of free blacks to petition the Massachusetts government either to give African Americans and Native Americans voting rights or cease taxing them. Although the petition failed to sway the Massachusetts General Legislature, the campaign helped pave the way for creation of a new constitution in 1783, which granted equality to all Massachusetts citizens. Kofi, who married at the age of 25, was a devout and evangelical Quaker who early on developed a reputation as a philanthropist. He donated the funds to create a school in his hometown of Westport, Massachusetts, and was supportive of other educational endeavors. A staunch opponent of slavery and the slave trade, he united with other emancipated African Americans in the northern states in their abolitionist campaigns using his Quaker connections with sympathetic co-religionists to support his efforts. Kofi, first a whaling ship captain, eventually became a ship owner. 
operating a fleet of vessels which sailed between ports along the coast of Massachusetts. By 1811, he was reportedly the wealthiest African-American in the United States and the largest employer of free African-Americans. Despite his commercial success, Kofi became increasingly disillusioned with the racial status of African-Americans and believed the creation of an independent African nation led by returnees from the United States offered the best prospects for free blacks and for African modernization. Inspired by British abolitionists who had established Sierra Leone, Kofi began to recruit blacks to immigrate to the fledgling colony. On January 2nd, 1811, he launched his first expedition to Sierra Leone, sailing with an all-African-American crew to Freetown. While there, Kofi helped to establish the Friendly Society of Sierra Leone a trading organization run by African-Americans who had returned to West Africa. Kofi and others hoped the success of this enterprise would generate a mass immigration of free blacks to West Africa who, once there, would evangelize the Africans, establish business enterprises, and work to abolish slavery. In 1815, Kofi led 38 African-American colonists to Sierra Leone. The colonists established new homes and integrated into the small community of former English residents and refugees from Nova Scotia. Kofi hoped to organize larger groups of black immigrants. Kofi's efforts, however, were soon eclipsed by the larger and much better funded American Colonization Society founded in 1816, which promoted a similar scheme that eventually created the colony of Liberia. As white and black Americans debated the merits of the ACS's mass immigration program, Kofi's earlier efforts were soon eclipsed. Paul Kofi died on September the 9th, 1817. New Abolitionist Radio salutes Paul Kofi. Salute man, to our forefather. Hey. Ooh, man, you know, it's just, wow, just to think that, you, honey, that's your family that did that. The wealthiest African in American history at the time, uh, partially responsible for the existence of the nation of Liberia, uh, it's just no, amazing, not Liberia, man. Sierra Leone. Well, uh, there was, a, we just, as you read in the latter part, someone else followed up on what he was doing. No, no, no. Thing. White folks was in charge of the ACS. That's what Lincoln and them was promoting. Remember, he wanted to ship right. all black folks out. So instead it, of work, instead of them funding Kofi to do it, they did it. They came up with a different movement to to do that. And I don't think their motives were all that good uh, in, in terms of uh, you know why their reasoning why. But no, he was work, focusing on relocating people to Sierra Leone, which I did not know uh, started out as a colony of formerly enslaved Africans. I did not know that. Ain't that where Akon is from? The, yes, the singer Akon. That's where he's from. I didn't understand. Yes, yeah, I did not know that it was for a, a former colony that was established by enslaved Africans from this part of the world. Uh, but this man, see, this is this is why it is important to read. It is important to dig up history because I never heard of this man until today, and everything that he did, I can see 
other people who came after him, I I would I would dare to say that Garvey was influenced by this man. If Garvey knew because he had a fleet of ships, man. What was what did Garvey try to set up? He had a business of what luxury of uh, ships, right? Cruise liner or something. I forgot the Black Star Line, something like that. And so you know, this man was doing things that we don't start hearing black people doing. You know, in terms of what we've been told. The history that we do know. Again, it's a lot of history we don't know. But he was doing things way before Martin Delaney. Again, I have to give Paul Kofi the title of the father of black nationalism here in the United States. He was ahead of Garvey. Um, he was ahead of all of them, man. And this was back, again, during the revolutionary period. And, and how come we don't know this man? Man, I tell you. Shout out to my family, the companies all across America. You know, Scotty, uh, I, from what I understand, he is much revered by revered by the Quakers, and he's yes, buried he in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And my friends in the Quakers actually made us aware of him uh, in more detail a couple of years ago, and also through research on our own history, my wife's history, and such. But the next time I go to Newport, Rhode Island, I've been told that we're going to be uh, taken to his grave there, which is on Quaker land, and uh, allowed to pay our respects there and see his grave. Yeah, man. So he's just a very inspiring figure that more people should know about. There's one other thing that seems very coincidental, Scotty, the very last line. Paul Cuffey died on September 9th, 1817. September 9th. That date just seems to keep popping up, doesn't it? It's the scheduled date of the prison work strike. It's the anniversary of the Atticus uprising and uh, September 9th is the death was the death of Paul Cuffey, the first black nationalist, as you said. Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it. I have a listener's in profile uh, sharing with you the history of our elders and uh, we also often use their wisdom in order to understand what we're dealing with today and to give us a comparison of how we handle this fight because they fought the same yeah. battles we're fighting right now. Yeah, collective economics. He was practicing it. You know, Yeah, this man was so ahead of his time, I tell you. Indeed, brother, indeed. Well, we don't have our uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad scheduled for this time slot. We've only got about five or six minutes left. We did our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad earlier with Brother Sungi Moses, and we had him in as a live representative of such. And we thank him very much and wish him well in his endeavors in trying to get his his true freedom back and his uh, reparations for what has hey, been done to hey, him and the hey. horrors he has lived through. Mr. Moses might be related to your wife through Paul Cuffey's uh, mother, who was, uh, last name was Moses, <laughs> and she was a Native American. It's possible. Uh, my wife's family on the Native American side is uh, Shinnecock, uh, coming out of the Long Island area primarily, Shinnecock Indians, tribes. Yeah, his his mother was, was uh, Ruth Moses. Wow. Man, it's, it's possible. Soon we, we might be cousins over here. We're going to have to meet up <laughs> to do some research, man. Well, we've only got five minutes, Scotty, so I guess we can finish it up with some final statements. 
there's so many stories that we had listed, as you have pointed out, that we couldn't share. But we gave you what we wanted to give you today, which is the overall story. So you can see this is a bigger picture. It's not individual instances. This is one big fight. The enemy has a name, and its name is slavery. And that's what we're fighting against. So, uh, Scotty, would you like to start out? Any Anything you want to point out or uh, final comments for the evening? Yeah, my final comments will be that I, although I try to stay even killed, you know, in terms of these victories, because I'm always looking for the trick. I'm always looking for the sleight of hand. But still, that was a very historic day for the private prison companies in this country to lose 50 percent of their stock price. And while they made a recovery the next day, they did not make a full recovery. They still ended up about 20 to 30 percent short of recovering what they had lost. So they had huge losses. They had huge losses. And right now, the financial market is kind of in turmoil in this particular industry because I'm getting um, contradictory reports from people who are actually writing for the same financial publication about this. Some saying that, oh, they'll be all right, and echoing the words of George Zoli, the CEO of the GO Group uh, based down there in Boca Raton, Florida. But then other analysts are saying, hey, this is the beginning of the end. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the analysts who say that this is the beginning of the end, that they prove to be right. And I just want to say that we need more abolitionists. Just think, if we if we had 40 million abolitionists, hardcore abolitionists, man, we could have been in this slavery. So let's just keep recruiting new abolitionists to the movement and keep pressing forward. And remember, we won't stop until our goal is met. And what is that goal? The end of modern-day slavery and human trafficking here in the United States. Make sure y'all join us next week for New Abolitionist Radio. Max? Scotty, if you can scroll down on New Abolitionist Radio's page and find the poem by uh, Muhammad Ali that I placed there, I would like to close out this uh, evening's uh, program with that poem. I'm just going to say a few words while you pull that into place there and chew it up. You know, I used to be a very different person. I changed. But I could not do so until I first changed how I thought, what I thought, and struggled to understand why I thought that way. Not only was I wrong about nearly everything I thought I knew, but I was also contributing to the wrongness of my community. That desire to change in the process of reconstructing myself began in a single moment and has lasted a lifetime. It's a process best described to me by my brother out of Arkansas, Amuja Moment Summer. I began as someone who was unconsciously incompetent, knowing that much was a catalyst. And I also know that abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Ladies and gentlemen. Max, I'm having trouble finding it, bro. You well, sprung let me it on me last minute. You right now, brother. I'll post it fresh for you so it's right at the top of the page, all right? Okay. There you go. And this is his poem on the Attica Prison Uprising uh, by the great poem Muhammad Ali. I mean, the great poet Muhammad Ali. And uh, his words should be as stirring to you as they are to us. Make sure you tune in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Most of your poems, Here like the one you wrote a few moments ago, uh, are funny. But you've written one about your own people, I think at the time of the Attica prison riot. It's a serious poem. You have certainly very serious moments, as you've shown us tonight. Could you, before we go, just say that poem for us? 
Oh, this poor minion uh, explains uh, the Attica prison. You heard that over here when all the black prisoners were shot and just before they held some white hostages and they said they would cut the throats if they didn't get what they wanted. And the word was, well, if the throats are cut, then shoot and kill everybody. They found out during the autopsy that the throats were not cut. They just shot them for nothing. The trigger happy policeman and that Rockefeller gave word 10 minutes or so if they don't give up, I think it's the way it went, open fire. And one black prisoner came out to speak to the warden. And he said, you have 10 minutes to surrender. What's your reply? Are we going to come in shooting? And the black prisoner came out, poetic poem. This didn't happen, but this is what I wrote. He said, better far from all I see to die fighting to be free. What more fitting in could be? Better surely than in some bed where in broken health I'm led, lingering until I'm dead. Better than with prayers and pleas are in the clutch of some disease, wasting slowly by degrees. Better than of heart attack are some dose of drug I lack. Let me die by being black. Better far that I should go standing here against the foe is the sweeter death to know. Better than the bloody stain on some highway where I'm lame, torn by flying glass and pain. Better call in death to come than to die another dumb, muted victim in the slum. Better than of this prison rot if there's any choice I've got. Kill me here on the spot. Better far my fight to wage now while my blood boils with rage, lest it cool with ancient age. Better violent for us to die than to Uncle Tom and try, making peace just to live a lie. Better now that I say my sooth, I'm gonna die demanding truth while I'm still akin to youth. Better now than later on, now that fear of death is gone, never mind another darn. They opened fire on them, but they died telling it like it was. Muhammad Ali. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up See the signs of the times at this time Rise up, rise up When death and hell dwell among all God's people When those we chose and trusted Have become completely corrupted and inherently evil When the feast that feeds you Starves our father's children When snuff porn and pedo forms Begin to get top billing Rise up when famine claims millions When justice gives blind eyes to billions When the Lord's anger is no longer feared If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up no matter if the prize is high in the sky or deep, deep in perdition If our leaders are globally despised And always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism If women and children have to live in impossible conditions If you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions Rise up when innocent citizens perish